Thank you for listening to Christian Challenge at K-State's podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, follow us on Instagram or visit our website. Hope you enjoy this episode. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you, want to, if you have your Bibles, you want to open them up there. And uh, while you're turning there, I, I, uh, <laughs> have you heard the joke, what the older fish said to the two younger fish? Have you heard that one? The older fish said, how's the water? And one of the younger fish looks at his friend and says, what's water? Have you heard that? Okay, well, you're welcome. So, (laughs) I say that because 1 Corinthians 4 is the end of a section between chapter 1, verse 10 of 1 Corinthians through 4 is all about unity. And that is, unity is big time on on the Lord Jesus' heart. And the enemy hates unity. And he loves division. He loves conflict. And so we've been, we're finishing up that section. So in this series we're doing this semester called Unentitled, it's kind of like this week and the last couple weeks we've done a little mini-series in the middle on unity. And I wonder sometimes if conflict and division for us is kind of like those young fish in the water, it's like, what's conflict? Because it's just so much the air that we breathe. Like, do we even recognize it? Like, if statistics bared out in this room, half of you all in this room have grown up in broken homes. You, like, divorce is a part of your story. Half of you. If this room's statistically accurate. There's, there's a lot of you that have probably, like, getting cussed out by a sibling or a parent at home is just kind of par for the course. That's just like normal life. Getting cussed out by a, by a basketball coach or a football coach or some kind of coach or mentor to you in middle school and high school, it's just, it's just kind of normal. It's just kind of like, we, we it's just the, the culture that we end, there's just so much division. 10 years ago, Manhattan, the city council of Manhattan, Kansas, tried to pass an ordinance in this town that would make us the most most, um, pro-LGBTQ city in the nation next to San Francisco, California. And I don't remember much about that ordinance or what it entailed, but I remember when that news hit, Manhattan, Kansas became the national story for a few days. And so I walked into the union here to meet with a student right over here in the courtyard. And I walk in that day, and he's got a, a collegian on the table. And, and back then, the collegian was a big deal. Like, it's new every day. Everybody read the collegian. In fact, the collegian probably was read more than the Manhattan Mercury. But um, we were proud of our collegian. So he's got a collegian on, the, on his table. And I... And I walk up to the table and sit down, and the, the front page of the Collegian in color had two pictures. One was a picture of people in the LGBTQ community protesting at one of these city council meetings. And the picture was taken, and the, the posture of those in the picture, the faces in the picture, there was a lot of emotion, a lot of passion in that photo. Right next to it, front page, 
was a picture of a group of people that came from a church in Topeka, Kansas, that, that traveled down I-70 to came to protest the city council. And they were holding up signs that were saying, like, God hates those people. And there was a lot of emotion and passion in that photo. And the headline in bold letters across the top of the collegian that went out all over town, not only on campus, said, choosing sides. So I sat down, I looked at the collegian, I looked at the student, and the student's just shaking his head. And he says, what if I don't want to be on either side? But division sells papers. Conflict sells. Anger sells. I see it everywhere. I'm watching the church right now, the capital C church like in America, divide over men's and women's roles in the church and what should they do, what can they do. I have seen, I've seen churches get in conflict over church governance and, and churches get divided over what's, our, what's the right view of alcohol and how do we think about that. I've seen families recently divide like they stopped talking to each other about who they voted for in the last presidential election. I've seen families like quit seeing each other based on what they believe about the COVID vaccination. And I just want to say, kind of starting out, that the enemy loves that. He loves division. He loves dividing families. He loves it when we hurt each other. He loves dividing friends. He loves it for a, for a young man and a young woman to begin dating and for one of them to do something to betray or to hurt that person and for the other person to just get a bad view of gender in their mind. He loves it. He loves dividing brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what was happening to the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago. It's happening in our culture today. But sometimes I wonder if we're like a young fish that we don't realize it because it's all that we know. There's just conflict and choosing sides everywhere. So 2,000 years ago, Paul sits down to plead with the church at Corinth saying, please, Please, please come together. Be together. And the way he did this, what Nate talked about a couple weeks ago, was he was talking about the cross. He's like, fall in line behind the cross. God used the cross, which was foolish in the eyes of the world and weak in the eyes of the world. He used what was foolish and weak to show what was wise and powerful in the kingdom of God. It's really brilliant and amazing. And so what Nate talked about a couple weeks ago is that when we do that, when we embrace the theology of the cross, our pride collides with the cross and there's no room for division there because so often pride is what undergirds division. And then last week, Brian talked about when we embrace this, like humility will be the way of life, repentance and humility. And so we are going to skip chapter three for those of you that like are paying attention to that, we're going to skip three and go right to four, not because chapter three is unimportant, and not because chapter three is not awesome. Chapter three is amazing. We can't get through 1 Corinthians uh, this semester going through every verse. But in chapter three, 
Paul just keeps pounding on this idea of being unified, and he talks about roles, and, and we all play different roles, but that doesn't make one person better than another. And then he gets to chapter 4, where we're going to be tonight, still talking about unity. He's going to kind of wrap that up in this chapter, and he begins to talk about perspective on how we view leaders and really how we should view ourselves, how we should view each other, perspective, the perspective we should have on life. So when we talk about perspective, we're talking about worldview. So it's kind of a worldview chapter. And so I don't know if this is kind of cheesy or not, but when I start thinking about worldview, the way that I often think about it is putting on my gospel glasses. So I want to invite you all to put on your gospel glasses tonight as we read chapter four. If you could, if you could think about the message that Paul's been giving, that the cross, the cross, what the world sees as absolute foolishness, God used it to reveal his wisdom. Just as everything's upside down. You see Jesus saying things like, like if you want to have life, you have to die. If you want to be great, you'll be a servant. It's just this upside. If you want, and he said, I use the cross, the weak things of this world to show the power of God. He brought rescue through the weakness of the world. It's amazing. So think about that as we read about perspectives. Okay, so chapter four, uh, verse one. A person, Paul's Paul writing, a person should think of us in this way. So Paul's talking about he and other leaders in the church. Think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. So Paul's going to use three identity words in this chapter to talk about leadership, and we're not going to talk about those. Uh, He he uses two here, servants and managers or stewards. We will talk about stewards. And at the end of the chapter, he says, uh, father, he he says we're fathers. It's, It's beautiful. I think it's verse 15. He says, You can have 10,000 instructors, 10,000 teachers, but not many are fathers. And uh, it's it's this beautiful end, and that's what I really, uh, a couple months ago, I was like, I want to speak on this, and I I wanted to speak on that verse, but um, I think God's led us to the first part of chapter 4. So anyway, next verse. In this regard, so he's talking about being a manager or a steward, in this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. Stewards, be found faithful. That's the point. That's, that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time together tonight is what does it mean to be faithful? You want to know what it means to be successful in your walk with God? Do you want to know if, if you're here just kind of investigating, kind of checking out what, what do these Christians believe, what do they think? The way Jesus describes success in the kingdom of God is not in how many people can fill up Forum Hall on a Thursday night. It's not in how many people are in your small group and your life group. It's not in how many people we pack out Webster Conference Center with for fall conference. Success in the kingdom of God is defined as faithfulness. Faithfulness. And I believe that all across our country, there are people, leaders, and Christian communities that have, that have 30 people in their church, that have two people in their small group, that, that are going to work and just rubbing shoulders with three or four people every day, but they're being faithful, and they're tremendously successful in God's kingdom. And I think there's other people that are leading massive churches or massive ministries with thousands of people that are not very successful. 
Because success isn't measured in effectiveness in God's kingdom. It's measured in faithfulness. So what does it mean to be faithful? Does that mean? Okay. (laughs) What does it mean to be faithful? Okay, you got your gospel glasses on. Here we go. Verse 3. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. He's talking about being faithful. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So Paul's thinking back. He's like, I can't think of anything that I've done to mistreat you in any way, but even still, what does that matter? It's the Lord who judges, not me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes who will both bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. I brought some some charts. Let's go to that first graph that I wanted to show you tonight. This first graph is uh, showing the blue line is a graph of kind of your demographic Sadness or hopelessness among teenagers in America. So if, and then the red line is suicidal ideation among teenagers in America. It goes back to 1999 up through 2021. So if you look at that, the numbers, you know, we're at about 26, 27% sadness and hopelessness, about 18, 19% for suicidal ideation. It's actually kind of going down a little bit. And then in 2009 the numbers start to tick up. And for the hopelessness, that ticked up really rapidly. I mean, we're up to almost 45% in 2021. For the suicidal ideation from 2009, it doesn't look as drastic, but you're at about, what, 13, 14% in 2009, and you're at 20% in 2021. So it's almost doubled, suicidal ideation. Next graph shows... Major depression among teenagers, 12 to 17-year-olds. It goes back to 2005, charts it up through 2020. The red graph is among women, among young teenage girls. The blue is, is young boys. The green is the median in between. So again, depression. It's kind of steady in the early 2000s. And then around 2009, it starts trending up, especially among teenage girls. I mean dramatically among teenage girls. But depression among teenage boys went from about uh, 5% in 2009 to 9% in 2020. It's double in about 10 years. Last, last one. This is just for girls. This is, uh, the blue shows self-harm. This is emergency room visits from teenagers this, the blue shows uh, uh, girls that went to the emergency room because of self-harm. Red shows girls that went to the emergency room because of suicide. And you see it's kind of ebbs and flows, hovered around 1% or 2%, no, 1,000 or 2,000 in a year. Um, is that right, in a year? Anyway, 1,000, 2,000. 2009, self-harm shoots up dramatically and suicide begins to gradually go up. Self-harm went from about 1,800 in 2009 to almost 7,000 in 2020. That's like a, what is that, 700% increase? So my question is, what happened in 2009? 
Do you know? Cell phones. I think the iPhone was invented in 2007 was the first iPhone. So close. In 2009, Facebook implemented the like button. Twitter implemented the retweet button. In the next few years, every social media platform had their own version of a like button and a share button. And what's correlated with those two buttons is massive, like multiplication of sadness, suicide, self-harm, depression. So, could it be that we are too concerned with what people think about us. That's what's so powerful about what Paul is saying right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul's like, all I am is a steward. I'm a servant and a steward. And, as, and all, my whole role is just to be faithful. Success is simply in being faithful. It doesn't matter what the opinions are of others. I don't really care that much what you say about me. I don't really care very much about what other people say about me. In fact, I don't even really, it doesn't really even really matter what I think about myself, which for me personally is fantastic news because I'm my own worst critic. And what Paul's saying is that when I have these gospel glasses on and I kind of fall in to the shadow of the cross and I look at the opinions of others from the shadow of the cross, I'm free because I don't really care what they think about me because I know what God thinks about me and that's by far more important. It means so much more. so much um, more freeing, so much, it's so much uh, more restful to know that I'm trusting myself to what God thinks about me because God never changes and God is always good and God is always kind. He's, God is the most loving, compassionate being in the universe. So I'd way rather trust myself to him than to what you think of me or than what I think of me. It's really hard, though. I can be so driven by the opinions of other people and the, the murmuring of other people about me or things I'm involved in. Uh, one, one thing that's been really helpful for me over the years is just studying uh, Romans chapter 8. And you get to verse 16 of Romans 8. I think it's verse 16. And, and Paul, talks, Paul wrote Romans also. And he said that the spirit God gives us when we come into to, uh, faith in him, God puts his spirit in us. And in chapter 8, verse 16, it says, His spirit, capital S, testifies to our spirit, lowercase s, that we are God's children. That's amazing to me. If you're in Christ... Right now, the Spirit of God is proclaiming to your heart, you are a son or daughter of the King of the universe. But we do tend to get too busy on our social media reels that we don't listen to His Spirit sometimes. But He's testifying to our heart, you are God's son, you're God's daughter. And then the next thing He says is that, then therefore, you are co-heirs, you're an heir with Jesus of eternity. 
Have you ever thought about that word co-heir? When you think about what Jesus has been through and where he's at and what belongs to him and what's in store for him when he died and raised again and he said at the end of the Gospels, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I mean, his inheritance is everything. (laughs) And Paul says, just like he gets his inheritance, it belongs to you too. You're a co-heir with Jesus. I remember the first time I actually thought about what that meant. I had a crisis of belief. But that's what the Bible says about you when you're in Christ. And so for me, that's been a powerful weapon to remember Romans 8, 16 and 17 as I'm grappling with the opinions of others and it helps me fall back in to the shadow of the cross because there's freedom in the shadow of the cross. But when I try to step out from behind the shadow, well then my heart starts to get filled with pride or maybe if I step out on this side of the shadow, my heart starts to get filled with despair depending on what people are saying. Bob, uh, the former director of Challenge, used to say, "If if you live for the praise of men, you'll die by their criticism. Verse 6, keep your gospel glasses on as we move, move on. Verse 6 says, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So, that, so uh, Paul and Apollos is another leader in the church. For your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. So the Corinthians evidently were adding to the simple gospel that Paul had proclaimed. And so Paul writes them in verse 6, and he puts in quotes, nothing beyond what is written. And scholars don't seem to understand where that came from. It's in quotes, not sure where it's from, but the commentaries, at least the ones that I've consulted, they all seem to agree that Paul's using that phrase to refer to the Old Testament to refer to the the scriptures. And Paul's saying, don't get beyond the word of God. Don't go beyond the word of God. And so when you're in the shadow of the cross, when you're falling into the shadow of the cross, we see that the word of God is sufficient. God's word is sufficient for all of our needs. For all of our questions, his word is sufficient. I read the other day, that 12 chapters in the New Testament don't make reference to the Old Testament. Only 12 chapters, which is amazing, which means that the New Testament writers were consumed with the Old Testament scriptures. And they were going back to the scriptures that they had to help make sense of their present reality. I wanted to show you another graph that I saw. Speaking of social media, I think this is where I found, I saw this arc. This was done by a couple of guys. And uh, what they did was they they set out to graph the cross-references of the Bible. What a cross-reference is, is if something's mentioned in one book of the Bible and it gets quoted or repeated in another book of the Bible, that's called a cross-reference. Or if if a subject gets mentioned in the Bible and that subject is referred to or that uh, prophecy is referred to later, that's called a cross-reference. And so what this is, 
the white bars along the bottom represent every chapter in the Bible. And the longer the bar, the longer the chapter. And then the arcs are every chapter that's connected to another chapter in the Bible. And the further apart by time that those chapters are, the different color that that arc makes. There are over 63,000 cross-references in the Bible. Almost 64,000. Now, the Bible is 66 different books <laughs> written over 15 different centuries in three different languages by 44 different people. Some of the Bible's poetry, some of the Bible's prophecy, some of the Bible is uh, narrative, some of the Bible is what we call apocalyptic. There's all kinds of, of genres of writing. People are in different countries that they're writing this from. And there's one main character in all 66 books over 15 centuries. It all tells one story, and that's over 63,000 times. It's connected and connected and connected, telling one story. And the word of God is sufficient. And Paul's telling the Corinthians as they're trying to stray from the word of God and trying to add to it, Paul's saying, you don't need it. Don't go beyond what was written. And when I say that the word of God is sufficient, is totally sufficient for you, I don't mean that if you it doesn't like answer every question. Like if you want to know the injury report for the football game Saturday, you're not going to find it in the scripture. If you're struggling with Calc 2, you don't read the book of Numbers and come out a, 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 a genius for your Calc classes. What I mean when I say that the Bible is all sufficient is I mean for every issue in life, every ethical dilemma, everything we need to know about salvation, everything we need to know about trusting God, everything we need to know about obeying God, we have that in the Bible. And so when you look through the lens of the cross, when you're in the shadow of the cross, there is freedom and there is rest knowing that we have the truth for all eternity in our hands. This truth is unchanging. We found it. It's true. It will always be true. 10,000 years from now, this will still be true. A million years from now, this will still be rocking. It will still be true. And there are plenty of religions in this world that try to add to the gospel. There are plenty of religions in our country that try to add to the gospel. But I think maybe in Christian Challenge, the way that we are most prone in, in our culture here that maybe we might be most prone to be guilty of what the Corinthians were guilty of is this, making the gospel about our tools and our programs and our resources. So I want you to hear me say this, that I am fired up for fall conference this weekend. There's a lot of preparation going in this weekend. Um, we're excited about it. We love our life groups. We have seen God do incredible things through life groups here. 
We've seen God move mountains in people's lives through life group ministry here. We're thrilled at what the Lord is doing with the sexual restoration groups. But if you start to believe, if you start to believe that you have to jump through all these hoops and do all these meetings and join all these things for God to be pleased with you, then we have failed you as a ministry. Does that make sense? If you think I have to do everything that's asking me for God to be pleased with me, then we're failing you. We do these things to try to help you walk with God. We don't do them for you to have a few things like, I did that, pat myself on the back, here we go, now I'm doing well. That's when we get outside the shadow of the cross. And that's where division comes. We want to stay in the shadow of the cross. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 7, continuing to read the gospel worldview. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? <laughs> so my, my uncle tells a story. Uh, I've heard him tell it a half a dozen times that he loves about the night that Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points in an NBA basketball game. Did you know that? Wilt Chamberlain played for the Golden State Warriors, he has the NBA record for most points in an NBA game. He scored 100 points. After the game, they interviewed one of Wilt's teammates, and I don't remember what the guy's name is, but I think he scored nine points in the game. I think he made four baskets and a free throw. And if he were here, he'd probably tell you the reason he made four baskets is because everybody was trying to stop Wilt, and so he got four easy baskets. And they interviewed this guy after the game, and they, they said, what do you think about, what do you think about this game? And he said, I'll never forget this night. Because tonight's the night that Wilt Chamberlain and I combined to score 109 points. <laughs> <laughs> and that's funny because it's a different perspective. It surprised you. It surprised the media when they asked him. But if God were to show up here tonight in a unique way, like God is here, but if his power was manifest in a more supernatural, tangible way, like a Sean and the team came up here and started leading us in response and, and music, and, and all of a sudden we had like an Acts 2 kind of moment where we're all in here and we're all like, something just happened. There was this incredible noise, like our hats didn't blow off, so it wasn't the wind, but it sounded like the roar of a rushing wind. And when the roar of a rushing wind came, like fire literally came down from the sky through the ceiling. I don't really know what it was, but it looked like fire. It looked like tongues of fire over Sean and over the band. And everybody in their seats began to hear. And like with, with crystal clarity, the gospel made so much sense in their hearts and their mother language. And it was amazing. If that happened, and tomorrow morning, you overhear Sean at Blue Stem Bistro telling somebody, Last night, the worship at Challenge was fire. Like, literally, literally fire. 
God showed up and God helped me save all these people. That's not funny. That's like insane. Sean, that would be insane. God doesn't assist you in anything. Everything you have, like whatever talent he has, musical talent that the band has, it's not because they're awesome. It's not that they just invented it in themselves. It was given to them by the giver of good gifts. All of the gifts in this room, we didn't come up with those. They were given to us. They were entrusted to us. I mean, it's like when you, when you come to Christ. It's not like becoming a Christian isn't like, I came this far, and God came this far, and we kind of met in the middle, and he saved me. That's not it at all, because the Bible describes us before Christ as dead in our sins and dead in our trespasses, dead in our transgressions. And when you're dead, you don't come halfway. When you're dead, you're dead. When you're dead, you don't do anything. And we, we didn't need an assistant, we needed a rescuer. And God did everything. We needed somebody who's greater than death. We needed somebody who's conquered death. Somebody who's actually been to the grave and conquered the grave and comes for us and breathes his life into us so that we can be spiritually resurrected. That's the gospel. The same is true for any gift, any talent, any passion that you have. And so when we get out from behind the shadow of the cross, we can kind of puff our chest up a little bit. It's like, look how good I am. We kind of live and die by our performances. If we get out from behind the shadow of the cross, we're probably extremely exhausted and fighting pride. But if we get behind the shadow of the cross and we realize every gift that we have has just been given to us from God, it has nothing to do with me. He can use it in me. But I didn't develop it. I didn't come up with it. He gave it to me. There's freedom there. Freedom from living from performance to performance. So Paul continues, and let me, let me wrap this up. He, he, um, he's going to go on from here and... and he starts using what we call a lot of times holy sarcasm. So I'll just say that. So you can hear it in his, in his tone here. So verse 8. You are already full. You are already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us. <laughs> and I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place like men condemned to die. So much to say about that verse here. We'll keep going. We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished, but we are dishonored. Remember, this is real person Paul writing a real letter to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago. Paul, the great apostle, Paul, the former wealthy Pharisee. In fact, he's described as the Pharisee of Pharisees. Now listen to his current state. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, 
We labor, working with our own hands. We are reviled, or when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. So the fourth thing that I want to say, kind of worldview perspective here, the first one had to do with the opinions of others. The second one had to do with, with finding wisdom or meaning outside the Bible. The third one had to do with the, the gifts that have been entrusted to us. And here we see how someone who's just a steward, just faithful, deals with being mistreated. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we respond with grace. Several years ago, I was overseas in a really dark, uh, spiritually dark and oppressive place. And we were working with the missionary team there, trying to discern if it was a possible destination for students from K-State to, go, to give up their summers to go and help this team. And after we'd been there for a few days, we're sitting around in the living room, in a hotel room actually, and, and we were talking about the possibilities, and I, and I, 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 said, I asked the wife of the missionary, um, I said, what do you think? Do you think this location is an appropriate place for young women, young college women from Christian Challenge to come? And here's what she said. If you have any women in your ministry who have any abuse in their past that have not processed it and healed from it, they should not come here. And then she said, because every time I leave my house, men gawk at me, men catcall me. I have to always be thinking about how to get from A to B safely. And when I leave my house and I walk to the market, this is what she said. She said, I walk with my head held high and I can feel these men, their gaze on me and I can hear the words they're saying about me and to me and I just think about God. And I think he will have his day of judgment. And I walk with confidence and trusting myself to my heavenly father. And I think about her story and I read these words from Paul when he says we're, when we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're mistreated, we respond with grace. And I think she's got it. She's bringing the beauty of the gospel to the dark and hopeless world. It's amazing to me. She's enduring. She's entrusting her heart to God. And the enemy would want her to get out from behind the shadow of the cross and to live in fear and to live in anxiety and to begin to think, kind of lash back out at these guys. 
But she's not. She's staying back in the shadow of the cross, trusting herself to God. God, I'm trusting you. I'm here because you've called me to be here. And if you've called me to be here, I'm going to walk with you. And today, my goal today is to be faithful to you. Just to be faithful. And she's bringing the beauty of Christ into the darkness. So I want to wrap it up. Sean, if you want to come up here, I'm, I'm, uh, I need to be done. But let me, let me end it with this question. I started with the question, what does it mean to be faithful? So let me ask you, what does it mean? Because when we read the scriptures, we find the scriptures talk about God being faithful. God is faithful. I mean, in one of the most quoted Verses in the Bible, Exodus 34, 6, when, when God kind of reveals his name and his character, he says, Yahweh, like the Lord, the Lord, uh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. God is faithful. He's faithful to you. He's faithful to you and how he loves you. He's faithful to you and what he thinks about you. He is so consistent. He's faithful to you and how he gives to you. He's faithful to you and how he leads you. And his extension of forgiveness to you. And so when he's calling us to be faithful to him, it's a different kind of faithfulness. We don't, we don't lead God. We're faithful to him by trusting in his leadership. So in, when it comes to the opinions of others, and we're, we're um, threatened with the temptation of kind of image management and how many likes can I get on my social media page, we're faithful to God by trusting what he says about us is of greater importance than what the world says about me. That's faithfulness. When it comes to the wisdom of this age and the wisdom of this world, and maybe think, well, let's take a little bit of the wisdom of this world and add it to the gospel. When it comes to that, we're faithful to God and trusting that his word is sufficient for us. When it comes to our gifts and the passions that God has entrusted to us, and we're tempted to try to win the favor of others through performance, we exercise faithfulness to God by trusting in his performance for us, not in our performance for him. And we hide in his shadow. And when it comes to being mistreated, to being persecuted, things not going our way, we show our faithfulness to him by trusting that he's worth it, that he's worthy. When you walk through the oppressive streets with people jeering and gawking at you and you hold your head high and trusting yourself to your heavenly father, it echoes, the echo from your life into the world around you is Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy. When, when, when good things are happening because of the gifts that you have, but yet you stay in the shadow of the cross and say, I'm only doing this because of God and because of the gifts that he's given to me, it echoes from your life into the world that Jesus is worthy. Faithfulness 
echoes the worth of the name of Jesus and it helps foster unity in the body of Christ. Oh, that's my longing for you. I would hate it if you graduated from college with no really close heart friends that loved you and prayed for you. Unity. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would reveal things in our hearts where our perspective has gotten off track. We just invite you to speak to us. For those in this room that would say the opinions of others, if I'm being honest, they matter more to me right now than the opinion of you, God. God, I just want to ask that you would turn up the volume of your voice in their hearts and turn down the volume of those around them. For those that would say, I'm just struggling with trying to find life and identity in the wisdom of this world, God, I just want to ask that you'd reveal that to them and would you crank up the volume of the sufficiency of your word. To those in this room that are trying to find life in the gifts and passions that you've entrusted to us, God, would you you help us be a people that respond with gratitude, that the thanksgiving to you would always be on our tongue because of what you're doing in our lives. And for those that are struggling and just feel the heat from family or from friends or coworkers, teachers, God, help them see your value and your goodness and keep their gaze fixed on you. We pray this all in Jesus' name.